Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the parish pastor here on the east side. Thank you so much for joining us for church this morning. I'm going to read uh, from the book of Ephesians. It's a letter in our New Testament. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 2. So I'll read that and then we'll pray and, and we'll, we'll dive in. You were dead through your trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the age to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are um, what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, we um, thank you that, as, as we just read, that in the age to come, he might show the immeasurable kindness of his grace. And that what we are peering into right now is immeasurable kindness. And um, we just ask for the, the ability to receive that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing on in our Lenten journey. And, and actually, this week, we have crossed the halfway point of Lent, which for me is always kind of a really helpful milestone to just know, like, okay, this is where, uh, mile marker, this is where we are. But I think a more significant uh, milestone has recently been crossed for us. And that is that uh, we, this week, as a country, as the world, reached the one-year anniversary of when the world shut down. I was thinking uh, about our last Sunday that we were here, and the Sunday right before school closed and everything. I think we had decided that week that we were going to stop serving bagels, and we did only bread for communion, and we, it was the first time we didn't pass the peace by shaking hands, but we just uh, held a hand on our heart and looked at one another. And, and then everything closed, and so we closed too. Um, probably most of us at that time thought we were sort of settling into an extended snow day, you know, not really sure how long this thing was going to stretch on. I remember an article came out around that time by a guy named Andy Crouch that, that got passed around our church quite a bit. It was very helpful, but he said, basically like, this is not a blizzard we're living through right now. That'll be over in a few days. It's not even a winter that'll be over in a few months. What we are entering right now is an ice age, a, a, a season of time that is, that is going to stretch and feel like it goes on and on that will completely disrupt and upset our way of life as human beings and is going to force us to have to adapt and not simply wait it out. It's not going to be enough for us to just sort of like hold our breath. We're going to have to figure out how to do new ways of being human or else uh, we're not going to make it. And a lot of us, I think, at that point sort of scoffed at the idea, even if we, you know, accepted it in part. 
we thought the summer is going to bring back normal. If you might remember, our president promised at that point that he would resurrect the American economy on Easter Sunday, which, uh, of course, that did not happen. We're not going back to normal soon. It's not going to happen on Easter this year. Maybe as vaccinations become more, more common, we'll get a little bit more freedom, but we know we're still on this for a while. It's been a year now. The earth has moved 600 million miles around the sun and we're still not hugging each other. We still wear masks everywhere. We still can't go see live music or travel abroad. We still are living in the wake of this pandemic, which is just to say, it's okay that this hurts. It's okay that we're still here and that, it's still, that, that it still hurts. One of the things I've noticed recently is, um, is that people seem to have reached sort of like the end of their rope in some way. I think that we were all living off of adrenaline and then it sort of crashed over the summer or over the fall when, when school got back in session. But then like the election season, I think it just ramped up our adrenal glands again. And we just sort of were living on adrenaline through March, December, into January, the Capitol insurrection, made it to inauguration day. Whatever side you were on, it didn't matter. There was just this sort of shared like propulsion forward. And then January 21st came and the thing ends and it's just everyone just crashed. And people are just crankier than they have been in a while. They're grumpier than they've been in a while. I saw two guys almost like get into a fight in Kroger two days ago over a parking lot. People are parking space. People are just kind of at the end of something. I was talking to someone recently and he looked at me and said, I can't do this anymore. This isn't living. And whatever you may think of that statement, I think the sentiment is something that we can all understand. At the very least, it's something that's very common now, the reason I say all that is not merely to sort of announce what time it is, like, hey, this is the day we're, we're living in. But it's also, I think, somewhat of a helpful metaphor in understanding our text today. Um, as all metaphors are, it will fail, and this one probably will fail sooner than most uh, to actually explain what I'm trying to say. But there is something in which this, like, two kinds of life, the life that we're used to living, the life that we want to live versus the life that we're forced to live, the sort of half-life, this, this lockdown life. And then in some way sort of relates to what Paul is talking about today as he talks about the life before and after Jesus. In Ephesians, the author who tradition says is Paul, so we'll just go with that, is describing, describing like this very binary reality of life before and after Jesus, and he begins with these words, you were dead, which is a pretty dramatic way to begin anything. He says, you were dead. And then he says later, but you were made alive. So what is Paul saying here? What is he saying when he says you were dead, but now you've been made alive? Well, it is easy. I'll just say, and depending on like your tradition or how much you're steeped in Bible stuff, it is easy. In fact, many people do literalize this. And it's actually the way that I've taught this in the past. I went and found a sermon from 11 years ago. This is literally how I taught it. That basically what Paul is saying is that there are people who their brain is working, their heart is pumping, there's blood in their body, their lungs are breathing, but they are dead as doornails. They have no life in them. They have no life of God in them. They are dead to one another and to the world. But through Jesus, now they're alive. Now they're breathing, not just breathing with their lungs, but breathing with their souls. And I think that this is ultimately actually a very unhelpful way to interpret this text. Mostly because, first of all, we all know, we all know 
that this sort of metaphysical rendering of Paul's words ends up reducing the human life to the soul's experience of God exclusively and casts aside all other ways of experiencing human life. It's too reductionistic in that sense to say that the only way to read this is literal death versus literal life and nothing in between. For one thing, it lumps all human beings into one of two camps. You have the living and the dead. The living are the Christians, and then the dead are the ones who are not. And as you walk down your street or walk through the grocery store or whatever it is, you can just imagine that it is filled with both walking living people and walking dead people. And the only thing that distinguishes one from the other is that one has happened to at one point to pray a prayer to have Jesus come into their life, or they attend church, or they've uh, experienced some sort of uh, gifts of the spirit. But this, it's just too binary. The kingdom doesn't work that way. There are plenty of non-Christians in this world who have far more life and joy in them than many so-called Christians who are more committed to the work of God on this earth, who are more committed to works of justice, who care about the poor and the marginalized more than those who take the name of Jesus. And tragically, as we've seen even recently with our brother, Ravi Zacharias, that as time goes on, there's only more and more examples that you can be the most ardent and outspoken Christian and be capable of as dark and darker, more death in your life, the fruit of your life, than even their so-called unsaved counterparts. And what are we to say to these things? How do we understand the death in life that Paul is talking about here? Or maybe to personalize it a little bit. If something happened in me that was so utterly transformative when I became a Christian, that it was as starkly different as a dead body in a morgue and now a living body walking the streets. If something happened to me that was so, it was spiritual resurrection, then why is my day-to-day existence not that much better than most people, if at all? Why do I still take antidepressants? Why do I still struggle to pray? Why do I often wonder if God is even listening? Why is it so hard to feel alive if I am actually part of that population that is the living part? How do we make sense of this language? Now, on the other side of this train of thought is an equally destructive and opposite binaryism. And that binaryism is that there is no difference between Christians and non-Christians, that we're all on a level plane, that there is no difference at all. Salvation, therefore, is not something that happens spiritually in the person, but it's something that happens uh, mentally in the person. It's just adopting a new way of thinking. It's choosing to adopt yourself to the teachings of Jesus. And that's really all a Christian is, is a person who has taken up the way of Jesus. And all of us in the world, whether religious or not, have moral guides that we're following. And Christians are just people who have Jesus as a moral guide. That doesn't do justice to Paul's language either, nor to the the rich language in the New Testament that is constantly speaking about this idea of you were once, but now you are just shows up again and again in the teachings of Jesus and Paul and Peter and James, you were once, but now you are this. So what does Paul say for that long winded introduction? First of all, Paul says that the death that we experienced, he says, you were dead through our sins. That is that the sin in us produced a deadness in us. And as a result, he says, we are following the course of this world, which think of a, like a ship moving down a river without a row or rudder. 
not controlling its own direction. That the, the sin produced a deadness in us. So I began to sort of follow the course of this world. And he says, and we become people who are just living off of the word he uses is lust and passion. And it's not just talking about things like sexuality. He's talking about this idea of instinctiveness, like the sense of like, I'm moving with the herd now. I'm just sort of following what feels uh, natural to me. In other words, um, what he's saying is that sin, and remember what sin is, is it's like a misalignment with God's purposes. It's a misalignment, whether it's behaviorally, whether it's structurally, it's systemically, whether it's individually, whether it's emotionally, whether it's with my hands and tactile, or it's just a way that I think about another person. It's a misalignment with God's good boundaries and purposes on the earth. And what sin said, what Paul says sin does is it deadens our heart. It dulls them. It makes them um, sort of, lifeless. And that with that lifelessness, we begin to move down a course along with the world. And as we do so, we don't even necessarily have control over ourselves anymore. And this is actually, if you think about it and just step back from it, you think like this is actually the trajectory of what sin does. A sin becomes something, it's usually something that feels like it's a choice. It's something we're choosing to do. But over time, it becomes something that we're no longer really choosing. It's sort of habitual. And then over time, it actually is not just habitual. It's sort of identifying. It's part of, our, it's part of who we are. It's the, it's, the, it's the way that internet pornography becomes something that a curious preteen like, looks at on their, on their parents' devices, but then later in life is fired from their job because they can't stop looking at it on their work computer in their office. Or it's the way that a commitment to a healthy lifestyle, but one that is motivated actually by fear and envy of others and by vanity can in time become something that is a, a disorder in themselves. Or the way that money, uh, as, as a person's capacity to make money grows, so does their need for more and more because it still never feels like enough. It's sort of the way that sin works. Like sin, like it's a little thing, it feels like a choice, but it deadens us and over time we sort of lose control um, of ourselves produces a dullness, a lifelessness, the absence of freedom of choice. And there's a sense in which I believe that everyone can relate to this, not just non-Christians, that everyone can understand like, oh, that is kind of how it works in my life, whatever the areas may be. That is how it feels. And so what are we to make of that? Are none of us Christians? Have none of us experienced this invigorating life of God in a way that is transformative enough so that we no longer experience these things, following the course of the world, following our lusts and desires? Or is there something else going on here in which Paul is describing a movement in the direction of life that we're invited into by understanding first and foremost what a Christian is? He says, but God being rich in mercy... What a great word for God. What is God rich in? <laughs> mercy. But God being rich in mercy made us alive together with him. Paul's contention is that while we may, that while we may be left to our own devices, ships without a rudder, that God is the intervening rescuer. And how does God rescue us? He rescues us by dying himself. Fully, totally, through our sins and for our sins, he descended to the dead, as we say. So that as Christ was made alive, that life now transfers onto you and to me uh, and to the world. And Paul says that this is holy grace. Grace is a translation of the word charis. Love that word. It's a beautiful word. It's also the word where we get words like charismatic or um, charisma. 
Charisma is a person, a person with natural charisma is a person who uh, appears to be relationally generous, like in a way that people feel like known or um, ex- uh, like they have access to that person. That's what Chara says. It's, it's relational generosity. Charis means generous gift. It is this idea that what God has done for us is he has generously gifted us with something that we could not otherwise ever obtain. Paul is describing a hopeless situation. In fact, in verse 12 of this chapter, he says that we are without God and without hope in this world apart from God doing this thing. But now because of grace, because God is rich in mercy, because the thing that is pouring out of God's wallet is mercy that is motivated by love, he chooses to move towards us in ways that we could not move towards him. Like a father who watches his children careening off the edge of a cliff, he does something about it. And he therefore gifts us with what we couldn't have otherwise. And a Christian is, is somebody who believes this in a way that it begins to change them. Which is why the very next thing Paul says is that you are now God's workmanship. His, the Greek word is like masterpiece or work of art, his poetry. That God is telling a story on the earth now with your life for good works. That you were created, Paul says, for good works. And now you're finally free to do it. Do you know why? Because God is in his nature generative. The Bible begins with this idea. God creates and generates. He makes things. He shares things. We are by nature consumers. We take things. We have to learn to be generous. Like it's not something that's necessarily intrinsic to us. As a person more and more realizes that what God uses his power for is to generate life in us, we become naturally generative people. We become people who have like a holistic picture of the world that choose to move towards all people, especially those who no one else is moving towards with the generous love and gifts of God. This is why he immediately says it's all grace. God is reshaping your life by grace, making you his cooperative friend by grace. This is why immediately after this, the rest of chapter two, what he goes on to describe to describe is the racial healing that is possible in the church. Why? Because we have aligned ourselves more and more with the God who moves out of richness and mercy and grace. And we understand now that we don't actually have any claim to things, that we actually are fully recipients of grace. So we have nothing to do but to share it with others. And if we don't have to protect our own turf, if I don't have to be a person who's constantly looking over my shoulder, I can actually be a person who uses my power and my privilege to bless and uplift and benefit another with no thought for myself because I know I'm taken care of. This is actually what the work of God naturally produces in us. What I mean is that I see myself as someone who has received grace, has received a gift, not compensation. And it begins to disrupt the primary mechanism in me by which I live, and I begin to move towards a more God-like way of, of being. There's something that unlocks in us the ability to see the world uh, holistically from an eternal perspective. Many people in this earth today are doing good work. They're doing the works of God on the earth. So why is it different when Christians do it? It ne- isn't necessarily different when Christians do it. It might just be motivated by a different thing. One of the things that motivates Christians is this idea that we're moving with God in the direction towards new heavens and new earth. That We believe that God has an ultimate good end for all people and therefore no one gets left behind. 
and no part of creation gets left behind. We can be holistic. (laughs) We understand that it's actually like it's sin in us that causes devastation around the earth. And so as we begin to move towards other people in peace and in love and in harmony, the way that God moves towards us, we begin to right some of those things. We've said every week during Lent that our theme is that nothing shall separate us. A Christian is someone who believes this, who receives it and continues to move further up and further in into what it means. Um, Just in closing, I want to share a little passage from a book that I love and I've even shared, I think, this passage with you before. And please forgive me and please also indulge me. Um, So in The Last Battle, the final Narnia book. I know, how cliche. In The Last Battle... There's this really compelling moment where this group of disgruntled dwarves have, um, have died along with everyone else, and they have been transferred with everyone else into Narnia, into the new Narnia, new heavens and new earth Narnia. But they can't see it. They're huddled close to one another, and actually they're so trapped in their own individualism, their own isolation, that they literally are surrounded on all sides by feasts and joy and light and beauty. And all they can smell is putrid trash. All they can see is darkness. All they can feel is filth. And the kids are trying to, like the kids from the Narnia stories, are trying to get these dwarves to like, hey, come on, come on, like open your eyes. And like, how can you see anything? It's pitch black in here. Anyway, Aslan shows up, as he does. And it's really great when he shows up. And they look at him, Lucy says, Aslan, can you please do something about these dwarves? Like, almost like, help them. What's wrong with them? Why can't they see? And Aslan says, I will show you both what I can do and what I cannot do. And he comes close to the dwarves and he gave a low growl. Low, but it set the air shaking. And all the dwarfs say to one another is, do you hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine. Don't take any notice. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And then Aslan shook his mane and suddenly a rich feast appears before them. And they begin to gobble it up greedily. And then they begin to think that those around them, the other dwarfs have better food than them. So they begin to attack and fight and bite one another. And this is what Aslan says. He says, you see, they won't let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their minds, and yet they are in that prison. And so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. What Paul says to you and me is that the grace of God has moved towards us when we weren't even looking for it and has given us eyes to see the land around us. And even the ability to see is a gift. All we have to do is ask for it. All we have to do is say, I want to see. I want to see the world around me as you see it. I want to be a part of new creation as you are making it. And this is for you and me, holy grace. And as we move out of that, we will find ourselves moving further and further into life. That's what it is. That's what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to do that. We thank you that you have made it possible through Jesus 
for us to experience life, the life that we desire, the life that we feel made for, and yet the life that we are constantly thwarted from receiving by the sin and wickedness of this world and by our own sin. God, we confess our sins. We know that there are many ways in this moment right now that we live out of alignment with you, out of your alignment with your good purposes. Where we should be generous, we are stingy. Where we should be rich in mercy, we, are, we hold grudges. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. We pray that not only would you forgive us, but that we would know you've forgiven us in such a way that we naturally move away from those things in joy towards other people. Lord, we pray that this would be a day of salvation for our souls. That you would help us to open our eyes and to see the world around us as you see it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hope to see you in a few minutes outside. Bless you, brothers and sisters. You are loved.